There are so many things that uh, I would like to uh, be able to talk about as we think about our calling to go out uh, into the world and serve Christ and take the message of the gospel to people uh, around us. But I felt the best place to begin with that would be to pick up really from where we left off when I was here in 2009. At that weekend, we were talking uh, about prayer. And so I want to begin with... uh, That's... Okay. I'm just trying to figure out what I have to do. I have to change it on my computer with by, my hand, and uh, this is working there, so that, that, that's great. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a technical person. Thankfully, you have some very helpful technical people here, which uh, otherwise uh, this wouldn't be going at all. <laughs> now, last time I was with you, uh, I was preaching... Uh, on prayer, and in particular on Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And so I thought that's where we would begin today. In that prayer, in John 17, Jesus prays this. He says, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There Jesus is praying not only about his disciples, the apostles who were with him on that evening, the last evening before he died, as he prays this prayer we call his high priestly prayer. But Jesus is praying for them, and also, he says, for all those who will believe through them, which includes you and me. So Jesus praying for the whole church of the future, including you here in Desert Springs in 2012. Jesus' prayer for us. As you sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them into the world. And later in John's Gospel, after his resurrection, Jesus repeats these words to his disciples. He says, he breathes on them, breathes out the Holy Spirit and says to them, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Christ is the apostle of the Father. An apostle is one who is sent out, a missionary. That's what the word apostle means, just literally. And so you and I are the missionaries, the apostles of Christ, not with the authority of the apostles, but with the same task to be sent out into the world. Every day, that is our commission. That is your commission today, here in Desert Springs. As the Father sent Jesus, even so, Jesus is sending you. That's his prayer for you every day, and that is his commission for you. Now, Jesus' prayer is that we will be in the world. Just as the Father sent him, so Jesus sends us. And if we ask the question, where does he send us? He sends us into the world, 
that is into the world of unbelief, the world of idolatry, the world of sin, the world of rebellion against God. That is the calling of the Christian. God so loved the world, this world of sin and unbelief, that he sent his son. God so loves the world that he sends us into the place where the son was sent. Now, as Jesus prays in John 17, and we spoke about this three years ago when I was here then, almost three years ago in November 2009, Jesus prays that as we go into the world, that the Father will keep us there safe. Christ is praying for us. The world is a dangerous place because it is a world of unbelief, a world of rejection of God, a world of disregarding God's commandments. That's the world in which we live here today in the United States in 2012. Here's a world where uh, you all are familiar with what's happening with Chickaphill at the moment. Uh, A world where people are trying to undo the business of a Christian who says, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. He didn't attack homosexuals. He simply made that statement. And many people think it's right to boycott that business. That's the world into which Christ is sending us. And it's in this world where God's commandments are disregarded and attacked, where Christ prays that here we will be kept in the Father's name. Jesus says they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world, but they are to be in the world, just as Jesus was in the world. So our calling not to imitate the world of sin and unbelief, idolatry and rebellion and disregarding and attacking God's commandments, but that's the world we're to be in, in the world. And Jesus prays there in John 17 that in the world we will be protected from the evil one. We could put it this way and say that the safest place for the Christian to be is in the world. The world of sin and unbelief, idolatry, disobedience, attacking God's commandments because that's the place where Jesus wants us to be and that's the place where he's praying for us, for our safety, for our protection from the evil one. We might not think that. We might think that's the most dangerous place for the Christian to be. But it is the safe place because it is where the Lord wishes us to be and where he is praying for us. And he prays that as we go out into the world, we will be sanctified in the truth. 
And as we go out into the world, he prays that we might be one in order that the world might believe. The love that Christians have for each other and the love we have for the world is the primary testimony of who we are and of the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. Francis Schaeffer used to say that the final apologetic, that is the, the, the most important apologetic in the Christian's life, is the reality of love between believers and from believers for the world. Love is the mark of the Christian. So Jesus prays that in the world we will be one so that the world will believe and so that the world will know that the Father sent the Son. That isn't going to happen unless Christians are in the world, in the world of sin, unbelief, rebellion, idolatry, disobedience. So this is the heart of Jesus' prayer for us. It was the heart of his prayer on the night before he died. And I can assure you it's the heart of his prayers for us today. He always lives to intercede for us, to pray for us. And the heart of his prayer for us is that we will be in the world where he has commissioned us to go, where he has sent us. Now, let me simply ask you, is this the heart of your prayer for yourselves? As you think about yourself every day, what do you pray for? Is the prayer that comes to the surface of your prayers, Lord, send me into the world today as Jesus was in the world? And perhaps an even more challenging question, is this the heart of your prayer for your children? And for me, for my grandchildren, my nine little grandchildren between the ages of five months and 12, is this the heart of my prayer for them? That they will be in the world as Jesus was in the world. So what are we praying for? for ourselves, for each other, for this church, and especially for our children, because that's really where the rubber hits the road. What kind of believers are we raising in our homes? Are we raising our children, and are we praying for them to be the kind of people Christ desires them to be? who are sent into the world as he was in the world. So that's our introduction. And then we're going to look at an example of this from Jesus' life. And the passage we're going to look at is Luke chapter 19. There are many examples we could use from the Gospels to help us think about this, but I thought that this would be a good place to begin because it's a good example of Jesus being in the world. And so I'm going to read the text here 
from Luke chapter 19, and it's up on the, on the overhead as well. This is from the ESV. I don't remember what Bible you use here, but that's the one uh, I'm using uh, at the moment. So here, uh, Luke uh, describing uh, one encounter between Jesus and an individual, the particular individual, Zacchaeus. And it's important to note as I read this that what Luke has done is clearly he, this, this story is only in Luke's gospel. And what this means is that Zacchaeus is a man that Luke met many years later. And Zacchaeus told Luke what happened that day when he met Jesus. Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he went and interviewed the eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life. And clearly, Luke had met Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus told him his story. And then Luke summarizes it here, because what Luke has done is compressed several hours of the day into these ten short verses. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here's a a very early wall painting of this scene. This is from a a church uh, on Mount Athos in Greece, uh, painting on the wall of Zacchaeus, a very little man in that picture, uh, up his tree, and uh, and Jesus uh, calling calling him down. Now, let's think about the setting uh, of this situation. It's obvious that Jesus knows Zacchaeus. He knows all about him, uh, even though it's also very clear from the text that they had never met. Uh, Zacchaeus doesn't know Jesus. Uh, He's not met him before. Uh, But he is eager to find out about Jesus, and that's why he climbs up into the tree. Uh, This isn't an acquaintance that he's... He's looking for. Uh, we, we might 
One day we can ask Zacchaeus, why were you so eager to see Jesus? We can speculate what the answer to that question is. Uh, If you look at the preceding section of Luke's gospel, you will see that Jesus has just healed a blind man and the in Jericho. And people are astonished by this, and this is one of the reasons why Jesus is surrounded by a great crowd of people and why Zacchaeus, a little man, cannot see him and has to climb up his tree. So it's simply possible that Zacchaeus sees this crowd and he wants to know what's going on. It's possible that he's heard about the healing of the blind man, so he wants to see who this man is who's done this extraordinary miracle. It's also possible that Zacchaeus has heard that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher who is very different, Uh, that he isn't hostile to people like Zacchaeus, to tax collectors and sinners, but uh, is kind and welcoming to them. So we can ask Zacchaeus this question one day. I have many, many questions that uh, I want to ask people whose stories are told for us on the pages of the Bible because we always get just a summary. Uh, And Luke has given us a brief summary of this uh, encounter. So we don't know what the reason, but for whatever reason, here is Zacchaeus who is a very powerful man, and we'll speak about that in a moment. Very powerful man. Uh, He's an extremely wealthy man. Uh, The text draws attention to this. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. There's a very strong emphasis in the text there on these things. And he is up a sycamore fig tree, not a sycamore tree. You have those here in Albuquerque in this area. I saw some this morning outside my hotel. Um, It's not a fig tree. Uh, but it has leaves like both. Um, And the advantage for somebody like Zacchaeus, who is little and who, of course, is wearing a robe right down to the ground, not wearing shorts like some of you guys here, uh, so not easy to climb a tree uh, in his clothes. Its advantage is that it had branches that were parallel and close together, so he could easily climb it like a ladder. And that's what he has done. This little man has climbed up his tree his sycamore fig tree, so that he can see who Jesus is. And Jesus, of course, knows him. He knows his name. He knows all about him, just like he knows your name and he knows all about you, though you have never met him face to face, just as Zacchaeus had never met him. Here's another, tr- another painting. This is William Hole. His painting of this scene, he's a, uh, an English painter of biblical scenes from the 1600s, a quite a well-known painter who did a lot of scenes uh, from uh, the scriptures. Now, how does Jesus approach this man? What's fascinating about this is that and why I called this an unusual dinner invitation. Uh, Here, Jesus is talking to somebody who's a complete stranger. Uh, He's never met him before. But Jesus' approach to him, he sees this man up the tree, is to invite himself to dinner. 
in his home. Um, you know, I'm sure if I looked out at you now and I just said, hey, you in row five, you know, I'm coming to eat with you today, um, it, you'd be a bit surprised, uh, even though, uh, even though uh, you've come here to hear me. Um, but Jesus and Zacchaeus have never met before, but Jesus invites himself home for dinner. So is this rude? On Jesus' part, is it presumptuous? Well, no, not at all. Of course, Jesus isn't rude. Jesus isn't presumptuous. But the point of this is simply that Zacchaeus, because of his profession, because of the kind of man he was, could not possibly ever invite a man like Jesus to his home. He could not invite a Jewish rabbi or teacher He could not have invited any devout, God-fearing, law-abiding, decent Jewish man to his home at any point. Uh, People would have been offended by the invitation, and they would have absolutely refused to come. So it's an impossibility that Zacchaeus could invite Jesus So Jesus invites himself. And of course, Zacchaeus is overwhelmed. He responds with joy, and that's what the text says us. Zacchaeus, Jesus says to him, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. We're heading off to your home for the rest of the day. Uh, I'm going to have dinner with you and stay in your home for several hours. And Zacchaeus is thrilled to bits. He's full of joy and astonished, so he hurries and comes down and receives Jesus joyfully. And here's uh, another painting. This is also from the 1600s, this by an Italian painter, uh, Bernardo Strozzi. And uh, there his scene, calling up to Zacchaeus and him putting his hand on his chest. Me? You're asking me to have you to my home? And he is amazed. Now, what's fascinating about this story, of course, uh, the most beautiful part of it is what Jesus does in going to this man's home. But one of the fascinating things about it is the response of the crowd. Uh, The text tells us, Luke's text tells us, that they all grumbled, they all complained when they saw what was happening, when they see Jesus going off to the home of Zacchaeus. They all grumbled, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, we can understand quite readily why they were criticizing Zacchaeus. Uh, Here's a man who everybody in that crowd would have hated. And it's quite simple to understand why they hated him. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. The tax collectors were not working for the Jewish state or for the Jewish religious authorities, They were working for the Romans. And the Romans, of course, were 
an absolutely brutal occupying power. Uh, Rome was not some pleasant imperial authority. They were absolutely brutal. To give you an idea of how brutal they were, uh, there's a passage also in Luke's Gospel where it describes how some of Pilate's soldiers had massacred a group of Galileans who were simply on their way to the temple to offer their sacrifices there. Uh, To give you an idea of the the kind of extent of their brutality, the generation before this, the Romans had killed at least a million people in Gaul, that is in present-day France, as they conquered it and made it a part of their empire. So they're absolutely brutal. They had a massive population of slaves, and they had destroyed, they exterminated completely the Etruscans and basically wiped them all out. So they're they're a brutal imperial power. This isn't like the United States trying to bring peace and justice and law to Iraq or to Afghanistan. This is a brutal imperial power. And here is Zacchaeus. He is a Jew who is working for Rome. So he's going to be hated by his fellow Jews simply for that, because he's a collaborator with the enemy. Uh, In our setting, we might think of if we found that one of our neighbors was collaborating with Islamic terrorism uh, and working to commit terrorist acts here in your city, uh, such a person would not be popular. Well, that's Zacchaeus. He is collaborating with the hated enemy, the hated occupying power of Judea at this time. Now, the Romans employed Jews to be their tax collectors. But employ isn't quite the right word because the Romans didn't pay the tax collectors anything. A tax collector like Zacchaeus would decide his own salary. And that would be included in what he demanded from his fellow Jews. And they would have to give whatever he demanded because he had the power of the Roman army behind him. He could easily call on a Roman soldier. They were occupying the whole land in every city. He could call on them Say, this guy won't pay me. Uh, So every Jew has to give Zacchaeus exactly what he demands. He's become very wealthy at this job. So he's corrupt. He's also a chief tax collector, which means he's presumably over the whole Jericho district and other unscrupulous Jews like himself who wish to do this job will have probably bribed him to get it. So here is a man who's lived a life which is deeply sinful in all kinds of ways. There is no question about it. And he is hated by his fellow Jews. So we can understand why they are critical of him. And if we look at the next slide here, we want to ask the next question, but why, why are they criticizing Jesus? Well, uh, 
first level, it's very obvious. Uh, Jesus' behavior is outrageous simply at the social level. Here he is consorting with this man who everybody hates, who everybody despises, who people think of uh, as wicked. If you saw somebody who uh, behaved as a friend to somebody who is ruthless, someone who is corrupt, someone who is thoroughly sinful in what they do, somebody who's a collaborator with people you hate, uh, you would look down on that person. You would criticize them. This This happens in every human society. So Jesus is criticized simply because of the company he keeps. But there's more to it than that. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus is going to make himself unclean, impure, unholy by going to the home of Zacchaeus. To give you an idea of how the Jews felt about this, think of the example of Peter years later. After the resurrection of Christ, when Peter goes to the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion who is in fact a God-fearer, who worships at the synagogue, who's come to believe in the God of Israel. He's not a, a despicable man, Cornelius, but he is a Roman. And when Peter gets to the home of Cornelius, these are his words. You yourself know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. It's unlawful in Jesus' day, in Peter's day, because to go to the home of a Gentile, of a Roman, even one who feared God, and wanted to serve him, as Cornelius did, is to make yourself unclean, impure, unholy. Now, what Jesus does on this day to go to the home of Zacchaeus is much worse than what Peter is finding so difficult to do. Because Zacchaeus is a Jew who is making himself unclean constantly because he works for the Romans. He's also, of course, making himself unclean by his sin all the time, by his greed, by his corruption, by his ruthlessness. But the Jews of Jesus' day regarded a man like Zacchaeus as even more unclean than the Gentiles themselves. He had become, if you like, a filthy Jew. The Gentiles were dogs, but he was like a cur. Just the worst kind of dog preying on on little creatures eating the scraps of the Romans. So what Jesus is doing is flouting the laws of Judaism of his day. He's not simply ignoring social custom. 
by going to the home of this hated man. He is disobeying the religious laws of the day. And these laws, their whole purpose, uh, they're not Old Testament laws, by the way. These are not laws given by God. They are human laws. But their purpose is to maintain religious and moral purity by keeping separation from sinners. But Jesus breaks those laws. And the reason he breaks them, and he does it constantly, is because these laws undermine God's law of mercy. And mercy is the very heart of Old Testament law. But the Judaism of Jesus' day had turned to purity, to holiness, defined as keeping oneself apart from sinners, keeping oneself apart from people who are unclean. So they had turned God's law on its head. The laws of God are about mercy. That is the very heart of the law. And instead, they said, serving God, maintaining purity, keeping ourselves holy, is keeping ourselves apart from sinners. Now, Jesus' response to this criticism on another occasion is this. Because, in fact, Jesus is criticized constantly in the Gospels because of the company he keeps. It's the most common criticism made of Christ. Over and over and over again. I went to Israel for the first time in my life last November to lead a tour there. And I became very good friends with our Jewish guide, who is a a committed Jew, religiously, as well as simply one nationally. And we got on really well, and I'm going back again, Lord willing, in January, uh, and she will be our guide again, taking us around the land. And she was wonderful. But she said, on the first day we were together in our our 10-day tour, She spoke about how Jesus was a good Jewish boy, observing the laws of the day. And I didn't want to rebuke her in front of everybody, so I waited for a quiet moment, and I said, actually, no, he wasn't a good Jewish boy. Jesus was constantly breaking the laws of Judaism of his day. And that's the primary reason why he is criticized in the New Testament. And when Jesus is criticized for this, for the company he keeps, this is his response. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You can offer me anything you like, but I don't want it. You may offer me purity, holiness, cleanliness as you define it, but I don't want those things. I want mercy. That is the heart of what the Lord desires for us and for our children. Let me tell you a simple little story. I think I've got time to include this one here. Because it's one of our graduates um, who is a pastor now, planning a church. uh, A church where 
the Lord has really blessed their desires to reach out to the people around them. And so you had lots of non-Christians coming and coming to faith. But they were planning to have a pool party for their teenagers. And one of their fellow churches in town uh, heard they were going to have this pool party. And so the pastor's wife came to see my friend. Um, The reason I know about this is he called me one day. And he said, Jerem, help me. What am I going to do? And he said, I have two problems. I have a general problem and a particular problem. Let me tell you the particular problem first. It's this pool party. This fellow pastor's wife came to see me, and she said, this is a great idea to have a pool party for our teenagers. Uh, But if we're going to have a pool party, we want to join you in it. Uh, We've got to have some rules. And the first rule has got to be no two-piece bathing suits for any of the girls because teenage boys have raging hormones, and it's not fair on them. (laughs) Amen about the hormones, I hope. And and he said, well, but if we have a rule like that, my daughters won't be able to invite any of their non-Christian friends from high school and junior high. He had four daughters in the local schools. Uh, Because they won't come to a party with those kind of rules. They'll think we're crazy. And she said, very seriously, your daughters ought not to know girls like that. And so he said, what am I going to do? And I said, Basically, I I quoted this passage. You you need to just say to her, if you want to have a party with rules, you go do that. But God has set us here to serve the mission of Christ to the world. And I have taught my daughters to make friends with unbelievers. That's been my prayer for them. That's what I teach them. And that's the purpose of our party. That those friends will feel welcome. We're not going to make rules for them. Yeah, I know the boys have hormones. uh, But we try to teach them to be chaste and careful and wise and modest themselves. Try to teach our girls those things but we're not having rules because we're going to drive the unbelievers away. Now, of course, that was precisely the other pastor's wife's point. She wanted to drive them away for the sake of purity, sexual purity and holiness. But Jesus desire for us is precisely that we will be merciful. Not that we will separate ourselves from sinners. That's his desire for us and his desire for our children. There is no other Christian life 
that Jesus desires for us and our children. There is no other way of obeying God's commandments, no other way of being righteous, no other way of teaching righteousness to our children. We can teach anything we like, but if we don't teach our children mercy, mercy to sinners, which is the very heart of the biblical message. There is no biblical message without this, from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation. The mercy of God to sinners. That is the gospel that we celebrate. It's the gospel we sang about in those three lovely songs we sang this morning. The gospel of mercy to sinners. And this is what we are called to live. So that is Jesus' response to this criticism. Now that leads us further on in the story. Some hours later, and it's clearly the climax of the meal in Zacchaeus' home because Luke just simply signals that to us by saying Zacchaeus stood and made his statement. He's been reclining at the table with Jesus. They didn't sit. They reclined. They're reclining at the table. And during the meal, here he is amazed to have Jesus in his home. Oh, Jesus' wonderful love for Zacchaeus, his grace to him, his mercy in coming to his home, leads Zacchaeus to repentance. And he stands and he makes this wonderful statement of both generosity and reparation. He says, behold, half of my goods I give to the poor. He's a very wealthy man. We shouldn't be surprised by such a response to Christ. My own wife's father, who was not a wealthy man, he was a farmer, a small farmer, small amount of land in central California all his life. He gave away half his income every year, basically. C.S. Lewis gave away 90% of his income. His brother... Uh, Warren and uh, a close friend, their family doctor, uh, got together to make sure they could pay the bills because Lewis was so generous that they couldn't pay their monthly bills. So they decided to divide the income from Lewis' teaching at Oxford and his royalties from the books he was writing. They divided into two accounts. One they put 70% in and one they put 30% in of the money coming in, and the 30% was to pay the bills, and the 70% Lewis could do with what he liked. Uh, He carried on giving away more than 70%, but at least they got the bills paid uh, before he did it. We shouldn't be surprised by such generosity when a person meets Christ. So here's Zacchaeus giving away half his goods to the poor, and then he says, if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I restore it fourfold. I don't have time to go into the details here. You can see them in these uh, texts. Uh, you're welcome to have the, uh, this outline, which uh, uh, your, your, your tech guys have on, on their computer there. Uh, but as you look at the law in the Old Testament, 
it says for the kind of greed which is characterized by Zacchaeus' life, you're what you're required to do. If you've defrauded anybody, that's what he says, if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I restore it fourfold. For defraud, you're supposed to give back what you defrauded plus 20%. So if I had defrauded Ryan of $100, I would have to give him 120 But Zacchaeus looks at his life of greed and as he sees himself in the presence of Christ, in his beauty, in his love, in his grace, in his holiness, Zacchaeus looks at his life of greed and he sees it as just wicked theft. It's only theft of the very worst kind. If I'd stolen $100 from Ryan and I concealed it and I spent it all and there was nothing left, and then I refused to acknowledge it when I was confronted, then I would have to give him $400 back when I was found guilty. So here's Zacchaeus meeting Christ, and he sees his sin as the very worst kind of theft. And this, of course, is what ought to happen when any of us meet Jesus every day of our lives. That we don't try to justify ourselves. We don't say, well, I've done nothing wrong. We don't say, I wouldn't change anything, or I can be excused for this or that reason. When we meet the Lord, we are to see our sin at its worst, not minimize it. That's why Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye. You know, look at other people's sins as specks of dust, but see your own like a log. That's what's happening to Zacchaeus. He is seeing his sin in all its ugliness. He doesn't minimize it in any way before the Lord. And then Jesus makes his wonderful declaration. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This man, too, is a son of Abraham. Those are beautiful words. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why the Father sent him. He didn't come to save decent people. He didn't come to save righteous people because there aren't any. He came to save people who are lost. That's the condition of all of us apart from Christ. There aren't any decent people. Everybody is lost. That's our condition. And that's why it's so terrible when we look at other people and say, well, I'm going to keep myself and my kids apart from them. It's forgetting that we are lost and that Jesus came to save us. Jesus, that is his passion. That's why the Father sent him. And so when he came into the world, he didn't keep himself apart from sinners. He delighted to be with them. And what Jesus does here in this lovely little statement, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, he puts together two passages. One is from Ezekiel 34, and the other is from Daniel 7. In Ezekiel 34, 
Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out, I will rescue them, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. In quoting that passage, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is identifying himself as the Lord God, who is the shepherd of his people and who desires to save the lost. And then the other passage, Jesus quoting there, putting it together with from Daniel 7, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. Now, Jesus putting those two passages together, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is his whole purpose. Jesus is going to rule all the nations forever, every tribe and tongue every people and nation forever in this world because he is the Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. As we think about Jesus, Jesus' life, and again it's the reason he is not a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish young man, It's the reason he is constantly criticized. Jesus came into this world to have intimate fellowship with sinners. That is why you constantly read in the Gospels the Pharisees and teachers of law criticizing Jesus saying, why does your teacher... They say it to the disciples, eat with tax collectors and sinners. Because eating together expresses biblically intimate fellowship. Of course, it does for us too. We invite our closest friends, our dearest family, to our homes to eat together. And biblically also, it expresses intimate fellowship. All through scripture, we could look at dozens of examples of it. At the giving of the law, God invites Moses and the elders up onto the mountain and they eat and drink in his presence when the covenant is ratified. If you took a sacrifice, certain kinds of sacrifices to the tabernacle or the temple, after the sacrifice was made, your reconciliation with God God would be signaled by your sitting down and eating a meal there, a meal of reconciliation, a meal of peace at the tabernacle or the temple. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that is what is happening. Christ is inviting us to his table to eat with him, to signify his love for us, that he has welcomed us, he has accepted us, he delights in our company. And so we come to his table to enjoy his presence, to enjoy fellowship with him. And in the kingdom to come, we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be both the bride of Christ, all of us, and also the guests at his wedding feast. And we will sit at his table in his kingdom 
And Luke tells us in his gospel that at that time, Jesus himself will serve us at his table because he loves us so deeply in the kingdom to come. We'll be his bride, we will be his guests, and he will be the servant at the table, welcoming us and feeding us. This is Christ, his intimate fellowship with sinners. This is the whole gospel. There is no other biblical message at all. And here, a painting of Jesus eating with sinners, the thing for which he is constantly criticized in the Gospels, just delighting in their company, just as he delights in your company and in my company. And like Zacchaeus, you and I are sinners. We are to listen to Jesus' prayer. His prayer to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them. So Jesus is sending us. And this means for us taking the initiative with our neighbors, with the people around us, whoever they are, doesn't matter who they vote for. Here we are in election season. goes on a long time. Who they vote for is, should be irrelevant to us. It's not utterly irrelevant, but in comparison with their need to know Christ, it is irrelevant. It is utterly irrelevant. We are not to choose who we will get to know on the basis of their political commitments and persuasions. Think about Zacchaeus. He could not have been more politically incorrect working for the Romans. You're not going to meet anybody who is as politically incorrect as Zacchaeus. Not any of us will. But we're to follow Jesus' call. We're to take the initiative with the people around us. We're to be prepared to dignify those who are despised. I mean, Jesus could not have done anything more dignifying for Zacchaeus than to invite himself to his home. It's treating him with the most wonderful honor. Here is this evil man, and Jesus honors him with his presence. He gives gives himself to intimate friendship with people no matter what their sin. And Jesus delights to bring impossible people like this into his kingdom. And that's what he set us here in the world for to be in the world as he was in the world. Again, this is to be our prayer for ourselves, for our children. This is the gospel. This is the Christian life. It's not condoning sin. 
It's the only kind of holiness which the Bible knows anything about. A holiness which lacks mercy to sinners is not biblical holiness. Because it has nothing to do with the character of God who is full of mercy to us. It is not holiness at all. So our calling for ourselves and our children to pray for ourselves, to pray for our children, to teach our children, to be an example to our children. I would say just at a very simple level, from when our three sons were very small, when they started going to preschool, and then first grade and kindergarten, we tried to teach them to just reach out to the kids around them. Especially to become friends with and get to know people who were lonely and hurting. People who were excluded and ostracized. And what that meant was so many, our boys were very small, we had just a parade of little kids in our home who came from very broken and very difficult settings. And yes, they used all kinds of language we didn't teach our kids to use. And they came from homes often where the ways of relating were very unpleasant. But I would tell you that that never attracted our sons. Just made them sad. And filled them with compassion. Because it taught them to treasure the love they found in our home. The relationships in our marriage. Our relationships with our kids. And when they got to know kids who came from very unhappy situations, though it didn't make them start wanting to be like that, it had exactly the opposite effect. This is Jesus' prayer for us. This is the prayer he wants us to pray for ourselves for our children. We don't need to be afraid. He promises us that he is praying to the Father to keep us safe, to protect us from the evil one, and to enable us to serve him in the world. Amen.